Inhuman, The Monster of Cleveland is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence and abuse. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. What's up, you guys? I'm Haley. And I'm Andrea. And this is Inhuman, The Monster of Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back. Um, this week we are talking about Castro's second victim, Amanda Berry. Um, and I am, this is the book that I read and that I, I read her and Gina's book that they wrote together. And so a lot of the details that you shared in the last two episodes, Andrea, I didn't know. So I'm excited to share this with you and maybe there will be some episodes or some details that you don't know. I definitely think that there will be details that I don't know. Um, just from, you know, learning so much in Michelle's book, I'm sure there's just as much information that other podcasts and documentaries and movies did not cover um, from Michelle or excuse me, from Amanda and Gina's perspective. Yeah. Um, but first, I thought that maybe we should tell everybody like how we met. Um, yeah talked a little bit about like why we wanted to start the podcast but our friendship is kind of like random like we're not people who have been friends forever and like you know I think it's kind of cool to share how we met yeah and we don't even know each other in real life but you know what that's okay because you can still be besties over the internet true we've never seen each other in person and we probably won't until like a year from now at my bachelorette party like yes that's which I crazy. am so excited for. That's going to so be so excited. Fun. It is. Um, but yeah, so we met, if you guys didn't know, we both have uh, YouTube channels and we both do like lifestyle content. Um, Andrea has a lot of awesome recipe videos. Like her videos make me so hungry. Like you seriously, <laughs> I'm always dying for the food that you make in those videos. And you also do like cleaning videos, motherhood videos, all that good stuff. Pretty pretty much anything to do with motherhood, I do on my channel. And Haley has the cutest, I'm talking the cutest, and maybe I'm biased, puppy named Mackie. <laughs> so she has all the puppy content and you do some really good recipe videos too. So I'm, I'm on that baked oat grind right now. Yes. So I share a lot of that and yeah, a lot of content of my dog, who is a lot cooler than me, by the way. He has like <laughs> triple the followers on Instagram and TikTok that I have because like everybody loves him because he's really stinking cute. Um, but yeah, so we both have those YouTube channels and we actually met through the YouTube community and just knowing people, you know, the YouTube community is really awesome, especially among smaller creators that are trying to grow their channels. And right. So we met just through other people that we knew from YouTube and we had both found, um, and you know, we unfortunately met through an engagement group of somebody that 
we are no longer friends with and has hurt us both uh, immensely. And uh, that's another thing we've, you know, gotten stronger together through all of that. But the awesome thing is, is that we actually grew closer and our friendship grew more because of that. Because sometimes through trauma, what is is the saying? Through trauma comes. Oh, yeah. Yes. I don't know the saying, but you guys know what I'm talking about. So yeah, it all, and it all worked out. <laughs> it did. So thank you. If yeah. you know, you're listening, thank you because you, uh, I'm, you I'm sure closer. she is. I'm yeah, sure true. she is. True. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's how we met and we, you know, both started, you know, talking all the time and sharing our interests. And we both knew that the other one liked true crime because, you know, sharing podcast suggestions and stuff like that. And so when I, and we had, I think briefly talked about the fact that like both of us separately had wanted to start a podcast at some point in our lives. Right. Um, Yeah. We mentioned that, sorry. We mentioned that at the beginning of the year, like kind of some of our goals, like we were sharing with our other friends, Rachel and Julie, shout out um, that, you know, we had some goals and one of both of our goals actually was to start a podcast, but we had, I don't think at that point in time had any idea that we would be sitting here now but I'm so glad we are. I know. And we're like, so freaking grateful for everybody who has listened and supported us. Yes. So many of you guys have shared and, you know, it's just, it makes me so happy to see people enjoying the story. And like, I've gotten some feedback of people saying like, yeah, I'd heard of the story, but didn't know all these details. And, you know, we're, we're just starting out and I'm sure we'll get better as, time goes on and our audio quality will get better once we figure out how to record not via zoom um (laughs) but we appreciate all of that feedback and the support from you guys so keep sharing uh rate us on itunes if you haven't already because that does help us out and yeah i don't know that was kind of just a fun i wanted to share that because i feel like a lot of people that start podcasts have been friends for a while and I mean, we've been friends for over a year, over a year, probably closer to two years than not. Um, but it's been all through social media and I think, uh, I mean, that's probably more common now, especially with 2020, but social media friends are real friends. You guys like that's right. And, and honestly, sometimes they're even more supportive than (laughs) real life friends. Sometimes. Yes. No shade. No. (laughs) Um, all right. Should we get into Amanda's story? Yes. Let's, let's dive right in. Okay. So I'm going to try not to rustle my notes. I like printed them out like old school style. I haven't written in a word document since like college. And even then, I don't know the last time I did. So I was feeling all like, you know, fancy last night. That's actually, that's actually smart though. Cause I was trying to like put this, your screen on one side and then like my word document on the other side. And it was like, it, it worked out, but I, yeah. That's yeah. Smart. I decided to print it literally only because I had to turn the printer on last night for something else. And I was like, Hey, yeah. I should print my, my notes <laughs> while I'm here. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. But yeah. All right. Let's get into it. Amanda Berry was a quote. Did you hear that? Maggie like shifted and his collar like clanked together. Clanked. <laughs> of course. Look, he now literally, it's going to be Maggie. <laughs> do you see him? He's like passed oh, out, yeah. hasn't moved this whole time. Anyway, okay. 
Oh, wait, let me start over. <laughs> Amanda Berry was a quote-unquote typical teenage girl. She went to high school, loved listening to Eminem, and she worked part-time at a Burger King near her house. She lived in her house with her mom, her older sister, Beth, her brother-in-law, and then Beth and her brother-in-law's two kids that were young, um, and she was close with them. The story of how Amanda got abducted breaks my heart every single time I think about it, um, because similar to Michelle's story, there were a lot of tiny decisions that led up to her being captured that if any one of them had changed just slightly, she would have been free. Um, That's so heartbreaking too, because- I mean, that's life. That's just life though, you know? True. It's what the butterfly effect. Um, But yeah, she almost didn't go to work that day. She randomly got off work early because it was a quiet night. Um, Her boyfriend didn't answer his phone and she was only a five minute walk from home when she got into Castro's van. I cannot imagine the guilt that her boyfriend must have felt after that. I know. And actually what's interesting is, so they'd only been together for a month and, you know, they seemed to like each other from what she wrote about in her book. But when I watched the BBC documentary, he didn't seem to be, and I mean, this is just from one documentary, but he definitely wasn't as like heartbroken as you may have been. And maybe he didn't realize at first, like, oh, if if I would have picked up that phone call, like the like, severity of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. but Annie's, he was in, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you I go. was just going to say, and he was a stupid teenage boy. So yeah, exactly. And he was investigated. He was like the main suspect at first, because of course it's always like the boyfriend, oh, yeah. um, not for a long period of time because they couldn't find anything on him. Like they found blood in his car and then it turned out to be animal blood. Like they did some investigation into him, but they couldn't find anything because obviously he didn't do it. So that probably like pissed him off. And since it wasn't like they had been together for a really long time and all this stuff, he probably was just like, all right, I'm done. Right. I don't know. That's just my opinion, but, um, that makes sense. That makes sense. But yeah. So yeah, it is incredibly chilling to know that a change in any one of those moments could have led to a completely different outcome. I mean, even just if work had been busy and she wasn't let off early, her mom and sister would have been there to pick her up like normal and this wouldn't have happened. Right. But, you know, this is what happened and um, it's, you know, nobody could have changed it. It's just, that's the way the cards fall and that's what happened. So I'm going to kind of walk through that day and then, in more detail and then do kind of a general overview of the horrendous like years that she lived in that house, kind of like you did for Michelle. So as you mentioned in the last episode, April 21st, 2003 was the day Amanda Berry was taken. She had a four hour shift at work that night. And she, like I said, debated calling in sick because the next day was her 17th birthday. So she was 16 years old, turning 17 the next day. But she decided she didn't want to have to work on her birthday. So she decided to go into work. She got ready um, and started working that day. About 45 minutes before her shift was set to end, her boss told her that she could head home early since it was a slow night. 
So she packed up her stuff and was waiting at the Burger King um, for somebody to pick her up. She didn't have a car. Her mom and sister worked together and they were still at work. So they would typically pick her up on a night like this. But since they were still at work, they couldn't do that. Um, She called her boyfriend, DJ. He didn't pick up. And we later found out that his phone was dead. So that's why he didn't pick up. Um, She recalls that she would almost never walk home after work, mostly because her mom didn't like want her to get home alone, not even just walk home alone, but didn't want her to get home and be alone at home. Mm -hmm. Um, But she also, and I just found this kind of funny because this is such a typical teenage girl. There were a lot more people out at night and she didn't want people to see her in her Burger King uniform because she just was saying how horrendous it was. And like, so <laughs> that I just thought that that was funny. Cause like that would, would have totally been me when I was her age. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but this night, because she was off so early from work, she decided to just walk home. It was about a 10 minute walk to her house. So she was like, I'll just walk home and deal with it. Like, it's fine. So she was talking to Beth on the phone. Beth is her sister again. Um, as she started walking home and as she was on the phone, she noticed a maroon van that was blocking the sidewalk up ahead of her. She saw a girl in the front seat that looked familiar, and she assumed that the driver must be the girl's father. About a minute later, while Amanda was still talking to Beth on the phone, the van pulled up beside her and asked if she needed a ride home. She recognized the man, but didn't know from where. And even though she was about halfway home, so only you know a five-minute walk from home, She thought he was very friendly for offering and she did recognize him. And so she agreed to get into the car. I was just going to say, and it makes me wonder if he didn't like, I'm assuming the girl in the van with him was his daughter. And if he saw that the opportunity to take Amanda and like rushed home to drop off one of his daughters and make it back to, to abduct her. Yeah. And they never, it's never clarified, like if there was a person in the van, who it was, what happened. But I think that just that made her feel more comfortable and she recognized him. Right. So she hung up with her sister and got in and noticed that the daughter was no longer in the car. And she thought that was kind of weird, but they started chatting. Um, Amanda asked him where the daughter went, but he just ignored the question and, you know, started asking her if she worked at Burger King and then said, oh, my son, Anthony Castro used to work at Burger King. And that's when Amanda realized where she knew him from. It was Anthony's dad who she went to school with and also that she went to middle school with his daughter, Angie. So how did I not know he had a son? (laughs) Yeah. I've I've never heard that in any of any, in anything. That's crazy. Wow. Okay. Castro then asked Amanda if she'd like to see Angie, who was uh, at his house. You know, she assumed that that's where he lived with his family. And Amanda agreed because for two reasons. One, she hadn't seen Angie in a long time. So she was like, yeah, that could be fun. But the reason that she kind of wanted to go do that was she wasn't looking forward to getting home because her and her sister's husband had been kind of like petty arguing and she was just not getting along with him so she just really didn't want to be at home so she was like yeah I'll take a little detour see an old friend of mine you know didn't think anything of it 
So as they were driving to Castro's house, he was chatting about his kids. And eventually he asked what phone she had. Um, and she, you know, just answered, but nothing else happened. Then they pulled into the driveway at 2207 Seymour Avenue. And this was a neighborhood that Amanda recognized. She knew like relatives that lived in the area. She had been there. Friends had lived there. So she did recognize the area. Um, and as they were, you know, pulling up, he mentioned her phone again and asked if he could see it because he wanted to look at something on it. And she handed it to him. And then quickly after that, they pulled into the driveway and he said, oh, hold on, let me go hold my dogs so they don't come bark at you. Right. So he got out and did that, that. And then he, you know, was like, come on, come on in. Like Angie's inside. And like, this guy was slick as fuck. Like he knew what he was doing and everything he did was calculated. Right. Because he asked her what kind of phone you have, do you have seeing if she had a cell phone? Cause back then it was what? 2003 that wasn't yeah. super common for everyone to have phones like it is now and yep. then he asked her to use it and, and she's a kid so she's like yeah I'll let this adult use my phone yeah exactly. calculated very calculated yep. so he took Amanda inside to see Angie but the bathroom door was closed and so Castro said oh she must be in the bath right now um, let me show you around the house so he started showing her around the house and Amanda noticed that it was filthy but you know she just was trying to be polite. So they headed upstairs to keep touring the house. And he told her that his roommate, quote unquote, was sleeping in one of the bedrooms. And he encouraged Amanda to look into the roommate's room, which she thought was weird. But again, she was trying to just like be polite. So she peeked in the doorknob was missing. And so, which we know now is like, he had all the doorknobs off, but she just peeked in through that hole and saw a girl sleeping with a TV on, but she just peeked very quickly because she felt really weird, obviously, like you would. Right. Um, so then he led her into a big bedroom, which we know now was the pink room because Michelle was taken into the blue room later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she looked around and then turned around to leave and Castro blocked the door and then demanded that Amanda pull down her pants. So oh, wow. in that moment, his whole demeanor changed. Like you talked about, it was kind of that other side of him. Um, Amanda was terrified, started begging him to stop. And he did his thing and finished and then said, I'll take you home. But then suddenly his mood shifted all over again. And he forced her onto the bed in the room. And at that moment, Amanda realized that he still had her phone. Um, Amanda was screaming, trying to escape and wondering why his roommate couldn't hear her. Yeah, I was going to say, because there was a, a point in Michelle's book where she stated that there was a, an, an evening, I guess, or a day where um, Castro had came home and she heard what she thought was pornography because she heard like people like actively having sex. And it makes me wonder if that wasn't right because they would have both been upstairs. How? Yeah. How would she not have heard? Right. The, yeah. I, that wouldn't surprise me. Um, so he told her that he was going to take her home, but she had to be quiet first. And he then duct taped her mouth shut and tied her wrists and ankles together and then pulled a motorcycle helmet over her head. And he told her that he was going to take her down to the car like that. So nobody would see her, but instead they went down two floors into the basement 
That's when he tied her using a thick chain, tied her up against a pole around her stomach. Um, She could barely move. And then he left. So he had the motorcycle helmet and the duct tape upstairs in the bedroom at that point for her. Yeah. And then took her down to the basement. Oh, wow. Okay. So he was like really prepared. He... He probably figured that he, it would be easier to get her upstairs mm-hmm. than into the basement. That's what I would assume. Yeah, I think so. Okay. So while she was down there after he left, she eventually got the tape off of her mouth and wrists and she was able to slip out of her jeans, um, in an attempt to get out from the chain. Um, and she spent three days down there chained up. And when he came down and saw that she had escaped from her jeans, he was pissed. Just like when Michelle had gotten, you know, escaped a little bit and he just went nuts. That's insane. They're still, they're still tied up. They're still in chains. Like there's no way they can actually escape. Why does that trigger him so much? Right. And it's, you know, it's like, he just wants them to be submissive and just, right give in, which they're not going to do, especially right away. Like, yeah. So, um, okay. So after the three days she spent in the basement, she, um, got moved upstairs to the bedroom that he first trapped her in the pink room. And he chained her to the radiator in the room with the chain again around her stomach. And that, you know, bruised her a lot. She was in a lot of pain. She could barely move. And she talked about how difficult it was to sleep because this thick chain was on her stomach and anytime she moved, it would move and cause, you know, sores and bruises and all of that. So on top of being trapped, you're in pain. So she rarely got food once a day of that. And some days he would just forget to feed her. And when she did get food, it was often fast food that was cold or stale Castro would also put a radio playing like you talked about with very loud music and it was loud salsa music that he would play anytime he left the house so that if they tried to scream no one would hear them which I I'm pretty sure that's a tactic that like military uses to train like their special ops people like extremely loud music oh Um, I I don't know that to be like a hundred percent factual, but I'm pretty sure that that's one of the, it's kind of like the break you down to build you back up thing that right. is often, often occurs in the military, but right. I mean, that's, that's mental anguish and yeah, it's just awful. You can't even like have your own thoughts because this is like intruding your whole life. Exactly. So the first six days she was there, she was raped 25 times 25 times like he just was a child essentially a a child child. yeah Yeah. and he still had michelle there during that time so like yeah okay so he did give her a tv and she spent a lot of her time watching news stories covering her disappearance unlike michelle there was a ton of news coverage about her. Um, it was on all of the channels and it was everywhere. Uh, she knew that there were, it was being talked about at, um, baseball games at the Indian stadium nearby. Like it was everywhere. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the search efforts in a little bit. 
I'm going to kind of finish covering what happened to Amanda. And then I'll talk about that section because there was some more going on there. One day Castro told Amanda that he called her mom and sister with her phone. And she didn't really know whether or not she believed him or if he was just playing mind games with her because she figured that if he had called that it would be a bigger news story and she would see something about it. And she never did. Um, but there, they also did get a call from him. So it could have been that same time. Right. And, um, he let her listen to a few voicemails on her phone and he just like, he was just fucking with her. He was just, it was his way to control her. And she begged him to just let her call them his her mom and sister just to say hey I'm safe I'm alive but of course he wouldn't let her it's kind of the same like torment in a different way of course but like how he would tell Michelle no one's looking for you no one cares about you he's like letting her listen to these voice messages like everyone cares about you everyone loves you so much and there's nothing you can do about it right yeah just so fucked up yeah because he wouldn't let her call them obviously and he was like well you can write a letter but you can't say that you were kidnapped. You have to say that you went with me. So he was just, yeah. Okay. So Castro started calling Amanda, his temporary wife. He would rape her and then cuddle up to her and fall asleep, holding her hand. And the only time Amanda would, yeah. Sorry. That just made me literally want to vomit, vomit. Yep. Yep. Like, like, it's bad enough that you're raping her and then you're forcing her to lay next to you and you fell asleep on her. Like that's just 10 times. Psychological damage is what it is. Right. Um, the only time Amanda would get to leave the room would be to go brush her teeth and shower, which I think she got to do a lot sooner than Michelle did. Cause as you mentioned, Michelle waited eight months to get clean And I don't think it was quite as long for Amanda, but even that she couldn't do in peace because he would get into the shower with her. So even doing these like basic human needs, she wasn't able to properly do. Right. He had to be there. He was, I think he was like super infatuated with Amanda Yeah, and wanted to be right there with her all of the time. It seemed like. Right. She was more of his quote-unquote wife whereas Michelle I feel like he saw more as his prisoner for the most part yeah um one day she agreed to help him with the laundry and this was the first time that she saw Michelle she had no clue that there was somebody else in the house up until this day um you know she knew that there was the roommate and I think assumed that that was what was going on but she didn't had never actually seen her um and so she described, I just wanted to throw this in because I can just like imagine this, the feeling of him unlocking the chains as feeling 50 pounds lighter. Like Mm -hmm. you were stuck with these heavy chains on you and just getting them off was like a little pleasure that she could, you know, something she could feel good about. Right. So he then took her into Michelle's room And again, said it was his roommate and that they needed to clean up the room, which had trash everywhere. How confusing that must have been for her, like as a young, you know, a young girl seeing this woman or, you know, Michelle looks pretty young herself, but 
And then having him say, that's my roommate. And then her being like, well, why isn't she helping me? You know, like that must've been very confusing for her in the beginning. Right. And I'm pretty sure she figured out something was up because first of all, Michelle had to stay on the bed because she was chained up. And I don't know if she could see the chains or not, but she wasn't moving. And, um, she also, the room was a disaster with like, uh, fast food wrappers everywhere and stuff like that, because that's how Castro left it. And Mm -hmm. so I think she knew something was up. Um, so neither her nor Michelle said anything other than saying hi to each other, but she did hope that Michelle recognized her because her face had been all over the news, which we later know is what what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first time that she saw Michelle, but that was the only interaction and nothing happened again until months later. So Castro gave Amanda a journal. And so writing really became an outlet for her. She was writing daily and she started realizing that her pages were running out quickly. So she was saving napkins and food wrappers, anything she could to write on. Um, She wrote entries many days and she actually wrote at the top of each page for months she would write a number and then an x which would indicate how many times he had assaulted her that day and her goal of that was to keep track so that when he got captured he would be held accountable for every single thing that he did which is like so smart like as a as a teenage girl to think that far ahead because number one she was hopeful that they would be rescued and number two each time would be a charge. Yep. Like, I think that's one of the things that was keeping her going. Like, okay, I'm going to get rescued. He's going to be punished for everything that he's doing to me. Yep. And she was right. Sort of. Yep. Um, so yeah, a lot of her book, uh, a lot of the entries from her in the book, it's kind of told back and forth between her and Gina, but a lot of it is based off of the journal entries and even just for their general timeline of what happened when a lot of that was based off of the book and most of it is rewritten but there are parts of her book where there's actual journal entries and so I highly recommend reading her book as well um as Michelle's I want to read Michelle's once we're done with the podcast I wanted to be surprised by your episodes (laughs) but I highly recommend this book as well same I want to read it absolutely We'll have to swap. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So by August, Amanda was in the house for four months straight. And basically her strategy was, and this is a quote directly from the book because I just couldn't, I didn't want to reword this quote, don't fight. Don't make him mad. Do whatever I have to do to stay alive and get home. So that's what she was, you know, she was determined. She was determined that she was going to get home and that you know she knew that fighting just made him angrier so she tried to just give in but one day she felt like she had enough and she screamed at him just let me go or kill me and so he actually went and got an old like vacuum cord and started strangling her oh my god are you serious sorry that I wow that is awful I've I'd never heard that before Yep. And so she momentarily felt like a release, like this is all going to be over. But then he let go Mm -hmm. saying, I'm not here to kill you. And this is another direct quote. 
quote, I'm not here to kill you. I don't want to kill you. This is just about my sexual problem. Ew. So again, he's, he's trying to justify it. Like he's trying to say, I need this fix for my problem. Right. Which yes, it is a problem, but that is not the way you go about fixing it, sir. Like you need some extensive therapy for that. So after that moment, she just got more determined and she was like, he's not going to kill me. I know this now. So now I want to outlast him because I want him to suffer one day. And so that kind of became a drive for her. So there was a day um, in January of 2004, which was almost a year, about three months short of a year from when she had been taken. And it was something, another one of those things that could have stopped this all. He almost got in trouble for something else. And we did um, talk about this in his intro episode when we talked a little bit about his background, but he was a bus driver. And on one day he got in trouble for leaving a kid on his bus. The kid for some reason didn't get off at the school. And so he kept the kid on the bus all day as he went to like the grocery store and a restaurant and told the kid, just lay down and be quiet. Wow. So obviously the kid went home and told his mom and the mom called the police. So the police showed up at Castro's house, knocked on the door, but Castro wasn't home. And they referred the case to detectives to follow up. And eventually he got a six month suspension with no pay for this, um, which not six months, 60 day. So it's like you let you basically kidnapped a kid all day and you get a 60 day suspension. Like, I don't want somebody who did that driving my kid's bus. Like, absolutely not. No, he should have been fired. And honestly, he should have had charges against him for like child endangerment or something. Right. Yeah. And they even said it was, it was like a cold day out and he left the kid outside in the bus while he like went and ate food. Yeah. So yeah. In, o- in Ohio. Yeah. It's freezing. Wow. Yeah. So that's what happened. Um, so the police officers literally knocked. He wasn't there. And I mean, technically they had no reason to stay, but Amanda and Michelle didn't even know that that happened because of the radio being turned up so high. So they couldn't even, they didn't know. Right. Mm. So Amanda was obviously suffering immensely. She was being assaulted and violated daily, most days, multiple times. She was starving, injured from the chains, dirty and unable to take care of herself at all. Meanwhile, Amanda's mother and entire family were searching for her every single day. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the search effort. So this kind of at first takes us back to the day she was abducted. Um, But I think it's worth telling because her mom was like a little fireball and was so determined. Um, So I'm going to tell a little bit of that story now. Okay. So Amanda's mom, and I think it's Luana. It might be Luana, but I'm going to say Luana because there's only one N. So I feel like that's Anna instead of Anna yeah. with two N's. So that sounds, that sounds right. I'll go. Yeah. yeah. I'll back you up on that. Okay. Thank you. So <laughs> Luana Miller, she knew that Amanda was never home late from work. So when she wasn't home on that night in April, she immediately knew something was wrong and she called 911 around 9 PM, but the police didn't seem concerned. Um, 
after about three more hours, there was still no sign of Amanda. And so Luana called the police again. And so two officers did come take a report. But again, they were insisting that Amanda was probably just somewhere with friends or her boyfriend. Similar to what we talked about in Michelle's episode, they kind of were like, well, maybe she's just out. Maybe she is doing something. But Luana was so determined. And she said, quote, kids don't run away in Burger King uniforms on their birthday and leave all their cash at home. And can we just normalize the fact that most parents know their kid and like, just stop assuming that every teenager or young adult that goes missing is a runaway. Like, yeah. Can, can we just like normalize that? Because chances are like, I would say like 90% of parents know their kids and what their kids are capable of doing. And yes, your child is not going to run away on their birthday with the Burger King clothes on their back. Right. Exactly. So frustrating. Yeah. So she was, she knew that something had gone wrong, but the police still, you know, weren't taking it seriously. They were like, but just give it time. Like she's probably just out with friends. So after that, Luana and her older daughter, Beth, they were determined to, they had to take it into their own hands. They stayed up all night. They were calling all of her friends, making flyers, driving around the neighborhood, doing everything they could to search for her. Luana also called TV stations and, you know, pleaded with them to cover the disappearance, to get her name and face out there. But they also just refused to acknowledge that she was yet a missing person since it wasn't officially a missing person yet, um, just like the police. So finally, um, I, I don't know if this was, I think it was the next day, but I'm not hundred percent sure on that. A detective, uh, detective Rich Russell realized something with this case when he got to work and saw it sitting on his desk and he was, you know, looking through it to follow up. And he noticed that one, she was not marked as a habitual runaway risk which I guess is something that they asked the parents, like, has this happened before? Which is one of the reasons I think Michelle's case wasn't taken as seriously because she had left home before, which again, that's not an indication, but. Right. And so he noticed that. And then he also noticed that she had disappeared, like we just said, on her birthday and left her cash at home. So to him, something clicked in saying, you know, that's not right. So him and his partner finally started to investigate. Um, You know, they went to, the house they started looking into things they ended up investigating both a sketchy burger king customer that had worked at the burger king and had like kind of he was just very sketchy oh and then they also investigated amanda's boyfriend dj but they found no evidence there was no indication that either of them had taken them you know they had alibis they had there was just no evidence so then they realized they had no real suspects So a week after uh, her disappearance, Amanda's mom and sister were still working tirelessly to spread the word and get Amanda's name everywhere. And one night they were watching the 11 p.m. news when their phone rang. And again, I'm going to read the quote from this part. Quote, I have Mandy, said a man's voice on the other end. She wants to be here because we're married, but I'll have her back in a couple of weeks. And then the line went dead. She wants to be here because we're married, but I'll have her back in a couple of weeks. Okay. Does she want to be there and you're married? Or are you going to take her back? Like, yeah, it makes doesn't make no sense. sense. 
None. Yeah. So this further terrified them because nobody called Amanda Mandy except for her family and her closest friends. And Castro had just figured that out through watching news reports about her and all of that. Um, and then he actually called back and he said something like, don't worry, she's fine and she'll come home. Um, and then he hung up again. So in 2003, cell phone tracking technology was being developed by the FBI, but it was very, very new. And they actually came out and they were able to determine that her phone was somewhere between two cell towers on the west side of Cleveland. And they could tell this because it had been turned on and off multiple times in the first day after her abduction. But since it hadn't come on again, they could never actually pinpoint its location. I had, um, I think it was the documentary that I watched where they interviewed some of the police officers, how they had said they had literally driven by that house multiple times and just had no clue. And it makes you wonder like, you know, why there isn't something in place if they can narrow it down to like a block, why they can't automatically have a warrant to search everyone's home. Like, right. If I was an innocent person and the cops were like, Hey, can we search your home for this missing girl? I'd be like, yeah, like, come on in. Yeah. 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 Very. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. So yeah, that was a bust. And eventually those FBI officers had to leave because, you know, they were staking out, hoping that it would get turned back on so they could find its location. But Castro was smart enough. He was calculated. He knew what he was doing and they could never trace it. So in the first year that Amanda was missing, Luana had lost 30 pounds. She was just breaking apart more and more every day. She felt guilty about all the petty arguments that she had had with Amanda. Um, Her and Beth were constantly calling reporters, talking on news shows. They were doing everything they could to get Amanda's name and face out there for as long as possible. Um, And then one day they actually were on America's Most Wanted. And I believe that this was with Gina um, or, you know, it was an episode talking about Amanda, Gina, and one other missing girl. Right. And so... They were on that show and, you know, later we found out that, that Amanda watched that show and saw her parents. I mean, she watched everything that her mom and sister appeared on. Um, and after they taped that show, Beth told her mom that she felt that Amanda was close by and that her heart didn't feel empty like she thought it would if Amanda was gone. So at that point, they still had hope that Amanda was alive. You know, I, a lot of times with these investigations, I think they kind of assume that the person is dead after so much time, but they were, they were determined. They felt like she was still alive. Yeah. They always say that the first 48 hours are the most important and chances right. are, if you haven't located them after that, I mean, there is a high chance that they are probably deceased. And right. As a mother, I, I like, that is my biggest fear. And I can't even imagine like what she must've gone through. I know. Um, okay, so now this next part happened in 2006. Uh, so it's a, you know later. This was when after Gina had been taken, the girls had interacted. But I wanted to talk about it here because it's relevant to this and Amanda's mom. Um, so, and honestly, this is the most heartbreaking part of the story in my opinion. And it just it gets to me every single time because it's just I can't imagine. Yeah, 
Andrea's crying. So in November of 2006, Amanda saw on the news that her mom was going to be on the Montel Williams show with Sylvia Brown, who was a well-known psychic at the time. And Amanda was ecstatic because she had seen Sylvia Brown before. She believed that Sylvia would tell her mom that she was alive and nearby, you know, more than wanting to, you know, reveal the location. She just wanted her mom to know that she was alive. Like even all the letters that she would write to her mom that, you know, she would just keep in her journal or whatever. She was just telling her, I'm okay. I'm alive. I'm surviving. You know, obviously she wanted to be rescued, but she just wanted them to know she was alive. So on November 17th, uh, Luana was on the show and Amanda watched Locked Up in Chains in the bedroom. Sylvia asked Luana about a Cuban looking guy and Amanda was ecstatic because she was like, yes, that's him. Like, this is going great. And then shortly after that, Sylvia told her that Amanda was not alive. Yeah, I heard that and that's heartbreaking. Yeah, that just broke Amanda because she that she just wanted her like she worried about her mom. Like she's the one being held captive and she was worrying about her mom and how her mom was doing. Yeah. And so she knew that that was going to break her mom, which obviously it did, and that just like made this whole situation worse all over again. They were the three of them or excuse me, uh Amanda, her mom and her sister. They were all very close from what I gathered. So I can understand they kind of all took care of each other, you know? Yeah. Yeah. She did have that care about her mom, of course. Yeah. A hundred percent. And so Beth actually described their mom after this, that she didn't seem angry anymore. She was just sad. Like it just took everything out of her. And she just almost, she didn't give up because she never gave up searching for Amanda, but definitely something shifted in her. So about a year and a half after that, um, Amanda saw in the news that Luana passed away. And this is just, I can't, yeah, I can't imagine. And, and Michelle, yeah, yeah, she referred to that in her book because she saw it on the news as well. And just being alone and not having anyone comfort you like that, that is, I mean, that's earth shattering on top of an already earth shattering, um, yeah. you know, experience. Yeah. Sorry. I'm crying again. No, no, it's okay. Um, I was crying writing this last night. So Amanda saw it on the 6am news that morning and she described just feeling numb, completely broken all over again. Um, mostly knowing that her mom died thinking that she was no longer alive. Like, of course it broke her that she lost her mom. Um, but it made it a million times worse for her knowing that her mom never knew she was still alive, knew she was safe, quote unquote, like as safe as she could be. And she was okay. Never got the closure. I mean, do you, did they say how her mother passed away? Was, was there, I think it was a heart attack. Oh. or something, something like that. It was, you know, um, definitely Abrupt. the toll. Yeah. And the toll that it took on her being all these years. Cause she was just all consumed by this. Like you would be if your child oh, went yeah. missing. Um, Absolutely. So two months after that, Amanda realized that she was pregnant 
And she actually felt like this was a gift from her mom and a sign to keep pushing because for so long, her drive to survive this awful situation was so that she could see her mom again. And so when her mom passed away, that drive fell apart. I mean, obviously she had other family members, but her purpose was to see her mom again and tell her mom that she was okay. And so that had gone away. And with this baby, she felt like she kind of had an angel sent from her mother, like a reason to keep going. So I just wanted to mention that. Which is miraculous because I don't think me personally, I could find any silver lining in that situation and that she definitely found one. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we'll have more details about this when we're kind of talking about that part of the story, but she was able to kind of separate it and be like, this is my baby sent from my mother. Like, I think that that helped a lot. Um, her knowing that her mom sent that. Okay. In 2004. So we're back in 2004 before any of that had happened. Um, after almost a whole year of being locked in this horrendous house, Amanda knew something was up with Castro. She had seen on the news that another girl had gone missing and the story sounded exactly like hers. And like Michelle had a feeling when Amanda was taken, she had a feeling that this girl had been taken by Castro. So her name was Gina de Jesus. And she actually asked Castro point blank, did you take her? And he denied it, of course. Of course. And she kind of continued to push him and he snapped. And although he didn't admit it, he, she was pretty sure that she was right. Cause he, she clearly triggered something, but that part of the story is for the future. And that's what we'll be talking about next week. I'm going to go in depth into Gina's story and it's, it just keeps getting like harder and harder to, to think about and talk about because Gina was even younger than Amanda. I know she was 14, um, right? Yeah, she was 14 and the way she was taken is just like, it's even worse than how Michelle and Amanda were taken. Yeah. So that will be next week. And then the week after that, we'll kind of start talking about the rest of their stories and how they intertwined as they started interacting and all of that. The time that they shared in the house together and the dynamic that was um, kind of put in place, but also just the natural dynamic of the household and the girls all together. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's heavy. That was heavy. Yeah. Really heavy. Yeah. That's all we got for this week, guys. If you, um, enjoy and want to hear more of this story, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. So you will have us in your feed. Um, it truly is a very harrowing story and It is so difficult to tell and listen to because of everything that happened, but knowing that they did escape and that they did get through this kind of helps that. And you won't want to miss hearing that part of the story because that's, that's the best part of it. Honestly, I think if that wasn't the case, I wouldn't have been able to tell this story. It's like a, the largest beaming light and the longest, darkest tunnel, like at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yes, it really that is, is a good way, good way to describe it. 
be sure to uh, check us out on Instagram. We share photos every week of kind of what we're talking about in the episode. So you can get a sense of some of the things we're describing. Please, please, please rate us on iTunes. If you enjoy, we'd love some five stars from you guys. It really does help us. And we'd also just love to hear like your feedback, what you're thinking of the case. If you knew anything about it before listening to the podcast, let us know. Um, We'd love to hear that feedback and also like comment on our Instagram or DM us. We'd love to chat with you guys about all of this and your thoughts and yeah. And and shout out to our friend Leslie for leaving us a review. And yes. a little, we appreciate you. Yes, it means a lot. So, all right, you guys, we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Next time on Inhuman, the monster of Cleveland. Gina's mom actually didn't like the neighborhood just because, like, it was known for kind of bad things happening and their car was actually an old nissan that gina's dad had bought from her friend arlene's dad and that guy is named ariel castro so on friday april 2nd 2004 gina was heading out of school and she ran into her friend arlene who she was you know good friends with her and she asked arlene if she wanted to go roller skating because it was a friday and they were you know wanting to have fun about a block down the road a Jeep Grand Cherokee pulled up besides Gina and the man inside like rolled down the window, started talking to her and she recognized him. She recognized that it was Arlene's dad and her parents knew him. She knew him. She had been around him. He came very close to her trying to touch her breasts. And Gina yelled at him to stop and that she wanted to leave. And Castro was like, okay, but you have to leave through a different door to like get back outside. So they head down a few steps and she quickly realized that she wasn't going outside. But How disgusting. A 14-year-old. A 14-year-old. That is the it's same friends age with as your, your daughter. daughter. Yeah. Yes. Uh. Inhuman, the Monster of Cleveland is written, produced, and edited by us, Haley and Andrea. For more information and resources about the case, visit our Instagram at inhuman underscore podcast. And if you like our show, it would really help if you gave us a rating and review wherever you are listening. Thank you so much.